this time. Those who will be remaining in the sanctuary, I invite you to turn to Psalm 61. Psalm 61. And as you're turning there, just kind of as a, a point of update, so you know we're, we're going through the Psalms incrementally instead of all of them at once. So we did book one, took a break, we did Leviticus. So now we're in book two, and so in case you're not aware, book three starts with Psalm 73. So starting this morning, there's 12 weeks of Psalms, and then we're going to stop and we're going to do something else, and then we'll come back and we'll do book three, and we're going to keep it going like that. So just kind of give everybody sort of an idea of where we're at, because I understand, and, and this is just, I'm just being honest. Like, the best thing to do is to be honest, okay? I understand that all of the Word of God is useful and valuable. Amen? Amen. However, I also understand that not all parts of the Word of God are the same as each other, that you have some history, you have some letters, you have some gospel narrative stories, and you have some poetry, which is what we're in right now in the Psalms. And I also understand that as useful and as valuable as all parts of the Word of God are, poetry's not everybody's thing. And some of you will be super excited if I make the decision to like maybe roll over and do a letter from Paul or something after we get done with this, which is what I'm leaning towards doing. So just be encouraged, because I know some of you were really worried I was just going to jump into numbers after Leviticus. And I'm, I'm not going to do that. Uh, at least the Lord hasn't convinced me of doing so yet. So just want to throw that out there of kind of where we're going. We're likely, highly likely going to go to the New Testament and have something very, you know, propositional like Paul to A, B, C, therefore, you know. So non-poetry people and non-so-and-so begat so-and-so people, that's where we're probably heading after we finish up this section of the psalm. So... Psalm 61, for the choir director on on a stringed instrument. Now, I want to pause. I don't usually pause in the subscript to, to, to make comment while I'm reading. But I want you to note on a stringed instrument. Some of them say on stringed instruments, plural. This one's not plural. Very likely... This was set for somebody like David to play a singular instrument while it's being sung probably by an individual instead of a large group of people. Now, eventually in Hebrew culture, this was a song sung by the larger Hebrew culture collectively together at various points in their worship service. But its original intent was from an individual perspective. And that's going to be incredibly important in just a minute when we start walking through this psalm. So, for the choir director, on a stringed instrument, a psalm of David. Hear my cry, O God. Give heed to my prayer. From the end of the earth I call to you when my heart is faint. Lead me to the rock that is higher than I. For you have been a refuge for me, a tower of strength against the enemy. Let me dwell in your tent forever. Let me take refuge in the shelter of your wings, Selah. 
For you have heard my vows, O God. You have given me the inheritance of those who fear your name. You will prolong the king's life. His years will be as many generations. He will abide before God forever. Appoint loving kindness and truth that they may preserve him. So I will sing praise to your name forever, that I may pay my vows day by day. Let's pray together. Father God, thank you for your word. Father, thank you for its truth. Father, thank you for the comfort it brings to those who are struggling and suffering emotionally, mentally, psychologically, and spiritually. Father, thank you for the honesty that is found in Scripture that every day is not always a bright and sunny day. That there are indeed times where the world seems dark and dim and hard and tragic. And that, Father, you are still there and still care for us. And we thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. So this morning... The title of the sermon, it comes from, from the text of the psalm itself. It, it's, it's the idea of Jesus being comfort for the faint of heart. And so let's look at the first couple of verses here. When, when my heart is faint, I think the reason why this psalm is best understood in its original context as one individual playing one instrument is because this is a very personal psalm. David's heart is faint. He is downtrodden. He is brokenhearted. To use it in a more modern clinical terminology, he is likely depressed. He is struggling emotionally and spiritually and psychologically. He's having a hard go of it. And he's trying to process the pain that he is experiencing at this moment. So the first thing that he sends out is he he says, hear my cry. That's that's not calm language. That's pain-filled language. It's one thing to cry tears of joy. It's another thing to cry soft emotional tears as you recollect something either good or bad from your past that you still kind of catches you when you least expect it. But it's another thing entirely to cry out with the fullness of your voice in a moment of despair. It's not the same thing. That's what David's talking about here at the start of the psalm. He's looking around at whatever circumstances he's facing. And he's acknowledging to God, I am powerless in this moment. I'm helpless at this time. There is nothing that I can do to see myself through the circumstance that I'm facing. And all that I know to do is to scream out with the fullness of my voice, God, I need your help. That's where David is. 
Now, here's what I love about how this psalm is set up. And this is why the actual Hebrew text that we make a subscript that we don't include as verse 1 in our text, and we've been through this with all, a lot of the other psalms, is so important. This psalm gives us zero historical context of what's going on with David when he feels this way. Is it because Saul's still trying to kill him? Is it because he's still working through the tragedy of what he did with Bathsheba and the killing of her husband Uriah? Is it later in his life and the great plague that was brought on the nation when he took the census that he should not have taken and he counted the men that he should not have counted it and it brought death to many of the people who were under his care as king? Is it when his dear friend Jonathan essentially became banished because he was worried for his life because Saul was also pursuing David's life. We don't know. We have no idea what historical context this falls in. Which means it could fall in any of them. And friends, the beauty of that this morning as we kind of unpack this psalm and apply it to our lives. Is it doesn't really matter the details of the circumstance that has driven you to the very bottom to the very end of yourself, the the metaphorical end of your rope, if you will. It's the fact that you find yourself there at a place of absolute helplessness and complete brokenness, crying out in a desperate voice to God for Him to help you. The circumstances that got you there don't matter. And it's actually somewhat belittling of the human experience for us to look at other people's circumstances And brush those off and say, well, you should have been able to have gotten through that better than you did. It's kind of arrogant, actually, for us to look at what it is somebody else is going through and dare say to them, well, you should have been able to rise above that better than what you did. Friends, we have no idea what David is facing when he writes this psalm. But whatever it is that he's facing has driven him to the end of himself. And I'm going to go ahead and spoil a good part of the sermon at the beginning. But one of the best places for us to be is at the end of ourselves. Because as long as we're walking through this life thinking we've got it, we are in dangerous risk of falling flat on our faces. And so we don't know what's going on with David, but what we do know is he's crying out from the depth of his soul to God for help. And notice how he, notice how he addresses God. Hear my cry, O God. It is very personal. It's very relational. There's a closeness that David is feeling with God himself. And he begs and he pleads with God to give heed to his prayer. And then notice the kind of language that David uses here to express how desperate he feels his circumstance is. From the end of the earth, I call to you when my heart is faint. Now, interesting, we still use that phrase, that that metaphorical phrase in our own culture. That, that 
excessive expression, the end of the earth. Usually we use it as a designator of what wouldn't stop us from accomplishing some task. I would go to the ends of the earth to find you. It's usually in some really cheesy romantic comedy movie. And, you know, the, the, the guy who works, like we just came off the Hallmark season, you know, the guy who works at the tree farm and the girl had to go back in town to settle her dead uncle's affairs. And, you know, I'll go to the end of the earth. And all, you can rewrite the script for every single one of those movies. They're all exactly the same. And shockingly, I'll use about the same 12 actors. It's just true. They all have a career because of this season that now shock, sadly starts in September. And so anyway, and so y- you have, you know, this use of this phrase, the end of the earth. And it births itself out of the scriptures, actually. It's been in use that long. And normally it's not used, at least historically, wasn't used as an expression of what I'd be willing to overcome to accomplish a task. It was usually used as a designation of the suffering that I feel that I'm experiencing at this time. From the end of the earth. In other words, I'm not in the land of the covenant. I'm not in the place of God's divine covenantal blessing. I'm not near God's sanctuary. I'm not among God's people. The way that I feel right now is I have been sent away from all of that. I've been ejected from all of that. I've been banished from all of that. And now the way that I feel is that I'm somewhere at the far end of the earth. It's this feeling of banishment, this feeling of being outside of covenantal space that David is expressing he is broken down to the end of himself. And so from the end of the earth, I call to you. When my heart is faint. Now, this language of the heart becoming faint, that that word has a few different meanings. It means to become weak. It means to be without strength. It means to be sickly. Now, The heart, of course, in Hebrew context is the epicenter of human will, human desire, human emotion. So David is saying that everything that I'm longing for, everything I'm designing for, the epicenter of my being feels sick and without strength. That's the notion of his heart being faint. And so what is it that David wants to have happen in the midst of this brokenness? Now, lead me to the rock that is higher than I. My grammarian friends, it's poetry. You let them slide on the misuse of I as predicate nominative at the end of the sentence when it's not the primary noun. And the th- I, I, there's a couple of y'all out there. You're going to come to me and be like, what a horrible translate. I know it is, but it's poetry. You let that stuff slide in poetry, okay? It's okay, all right? Lead me to the rock that is higher than I. David is longing for something that is greater than himself to give him the stability he needs. He's he's creating a contrast of reality. 
I feel faint. I feel like I'm going to fall over. I feel weak. I feel sick. I feel like I cannot stand on my own two feet. God, I need you to move me to the rock that is higher than I. A place that can give me firm footing. A place that I can stand. A place where I feel like in the middle of the storm, my house will be beaten but not fall over. Does that sound familiar at all to something somebody else said in the New Testament? This is what David's longing for. He's longing for the end of the Sermon on the Mount to be true in his life. I don't want my house to be established on the sand and to crush and have a great fall. I want everything that I have to be built up on the rock. That's what I want. And so what's he longing for? He's longing in verses 3 and 4 for refuge. You, God, have been a refuge for me, he, he indicates what God has been before. God, this is what you were. You have been before in my life. You have been these things. You have been a refuge for me. You've been a tower of strength for me against my enemy. And so what does David want? David wants to so, sojourn in the tent of the Lord forever. Let me dwell, that word is sojourn, in your tent Forever. Now, that is a profound request. God, I don't want to feel like I'm way off at the end of the earth somewhere. I don't want to feel like I'm banished from the covenant reality and the covenant community and the covenant space. I don't want to feel as if my whole world is caving in on itself. I don't want to feel as if my heart and my desire and my emotion, the epicenter of my being is without strength. I want you to transport me to a rock that's higher than I am. I want for, I want for you to be my refuge the way you've been before. I want you to be a tower of strength for me the way that you have been before. I want to dwell where you dwell forever. Man, that's a great, that's a great ask. You know, a lot of times when we hit rock bottom for whatever reason, and we cry out to God this way, the cry of our heart comes really short of the majestic things that God could really do for us. We stop with mundane things like, take the problem away from me. Or, figure out a way for me to feel better. Or, you you sub in what other sort of like, selling God really short that he could do for you thing that we usually pray. This is going on with my family member. Could you just make that stop? And here's the thing. I'm not saying it's necessarily bad to pray like that. The problem with us praying in that way is that essentially what we're praying when we pray that way is, God, I need you to alleviate the stress just enough by you doing what you do so I can get back to doing what I do. I need you to make the situation the kind of situation where I don't really need you anymore. We don't like that. But that's how we end up praying a lot of times. God, take just enough off of me to where I can get back to running the show again. 
I can't do anything about the sickness or I can't do anything about this wayward child or I can't do anything about this broken relational reality of, of this thing or I, I can't do anything about this global economic crisis or whatever it is that's causing the great stress in your life. God, I can't do anything about the big thing. So if you could just like, you know, fix the big thing a little bit, I can get back to being the guy who's totally in control. Not how David prays here. David does not pray that way at all here. How does he pray? God, I want you to lift me up onto a firm foundation. I want you to be a refuge and a tower of strength. I want you to create an environment where I dwell with you in your tent forever. Wow, that's big praying is what that is. That's praying way past the immediacy of the circumstances and the problems. And that's looking to the long-term big picture of a covenantal relationship with God. That's how David's praying. God, I don't need you to just fix this one problem that's breaking me down. I need you to transform my entire existence. That's how David's praying. I want to experience refuge in the shelter of your wings. Let me take refuge in the shelter of your wings. It's a nesting metaphor. And I know it makes people incredibly uncomfortable. But there are a handful of metaphors in the Old Testament that have a very feminine appeal to them for the divine being for God. This is one of them. Unless you're just an avid, like, watch the nature show junkie like I am, it's very difficult to name nesting birds that have the male bird, the one nesting the young and keeping them safe. There's a couple, some really weird penguins on the continent of Antarctica that do it. I just watched a show about them. Amanda's nodding. Just watched a show about them two nights ago. (laughs) Crazy penguins in Antarctica where sometimes the dad penguin's the one that stays there and makes sure the little penguins don't die. There's a couple of albatrosses on a really weird island on the Arctic Circle. I know I'm, getting, I'm, I'm nerding out right now. I know. They, they'll take turns. But for the most part, it's the mother bird that stays on the nest to make sure that those little birds don't freeze to death or get eaten by sun bad. And then the dad goes off and finds them something to eat and brings it back. That's how that works. And so David is asking a really weird ask that makes us really uncomfortable in our modern culture. He's asking God, God, I need you to comfort me the way a protective mother bird comforts those who are in her nest. That's what he's asking. That's what he's asking. And let's just be real. Unless you had a really unusual family dynamic. If your house was quote unquote a normal house, if it was, please see me after service. I want to hear what that was like. But if your house was a normal house, you had your mom there and you had your dad there and they were both there together. Most of the time, if you needed to be comforted, if you needed to be feel better about something that made you feel bad, you didn't normally ask dad to do that. It's true at the Dancy house. And it doesn't have anything to do with misogyny or sexism. It's just true at the Dancy house. If my kids, when they were little, got scared, they did not ask for mom to come deal with the monster under their bed. Have you seen my wife? Now, she can handle any monster under the bed that was there. They didn't know that. 
They found out when they were older, oh, we should have been asking mom all these years to come deal with the monster under the bed. She's a tough lady. But they came and asked dad if they were scared. Dad, there's this monster. Oh, we're going to get him. But if they got a scrape on the knee, somebody made them sad, they had a bad day, they want me. Who'd they want? Mom. Mom will make it better. Now, I'm not up here saying this morning that God's a woman. Please don't hear that. If you heard that, wow, I don't know what to do with you and your thought processes. I really don't. But what David is expressing is a profound expression of the pain and the sorrow that he's facing. God, I want to live with you forever in your tent. I want to take shelter under your protective wings that will keep me warm, keep me fed, and keep me safe from all of my enemies. I want that sort of comfort that can only be found in the nest. That's what I want. Friends, that's a whole different kind of prayer than, hey, make this problem go away. That's a whole different kind of prayer than, please make me feel better. That's the way we should approach the suffering and the faint of heart and the depression and the anxiety and all the things. It should reach way beyond, hey, make it better, make it go away. And it should reach right into the full character of the glory of God. God, you're so much other than these circumstances that I'm facing right now. And I long to dwell where you are because I know none of this can get there. This is how David's praying. This is how David is praying. And so what do do we do with that? What do we do with that? David affirms the greatness of God in this moment. Notice what it says here in verse, verses 5 through 8. You have heard my vows. There's the hearing that God has. God, you have heard. And friends, let me, let me tell you this morning, even if your circumstances never change, even if they get worse, God has heard you. See, that should be way more comforting than what it just was. Like, I know that we're a fairly reserved, openly reformed, conservative Southern Baptist church and that, you know, we we raise our hands inside of our heart. You know, that's what we do. And we say and we say amen to ourselves. I understand that. But if anything's ever going to break through. The fact that no matter what's actually going on in your world. Our God is a sovereign God who attends to us regularly, who sees us and hears us and cares for us enough that his son redeemed us through his own death should be profoundly overwhelming to us. God, you have Heard And then notice God's blessing, God's blessing that comes from being a God that hears us. God has heard the solemn promises of David. You have heard my vows, O God. There's some solemn promises that are made in our relationship with God. You have given me, notice this, I love this. You have given me the inheritance of those who fear 
your name. I want to pause. This is the first time David goes plural in the psalm. It's so far been up me. My this, me that, what I'm struggling with, my heart, I'm faint, I trust you, I want to be lifted up by you. It's been very personal to this point. And then when he gets to this point, notice what he shifts to. He says, you have given me the inheritance because I fear your name. It's not what he says. You have given me the inheritance of those, plural, who fear your name. In other words, David is acknowledging the humble reality that he is part of a larger community of people that God has saved and cares for. Friends, one of the reasons why we get stuck in the sorrow and the pain and the suffering of our circumstances is because we never get past the place where we have to realize it's not always and only just about me. And in the middle of whatever it is that David's going through, he's looking out past himself to an entire community of people. And he's saying, you know what? Not only am I richly blessed, not only is God a refuge for me, not only is he a tower for me, but he has this whole inheritance that he's giving to a whole big group of people that he has caused in their lives this transformation where they fear his name. Sometimes the quickest way to resolve any deep sorrow in our hearts is to stop looking at the deep sorrow in our heart and start looking out at the faces of the joy-filled, transformed people that we do community with. And then we can learn to laugh with those who laugh and weep with those who weep. And then I, I want you to notice this really awesome thing that David does. This is so cool. David starts talking about the blessing of the king in third person. He doesn't say you'll prolong my life as the king. In fact, all of these blessings for the king, he does not apply to himself. So let's do a a quick pop quiz. Was David the king? Yes. Yes, he was. Even if he wasn't on the throne, he was the king. He was the one set apart by the prophet, by God, to be the king of Israel. He was the king. And of course, we don't know when this was written. He may have been on the throne by this time. We have no idea. Notice how he talks about God blessing the king. You will prolong the king's life. His years will be as many generations. He will abide before God forever. A point loving kindness and truth that they may preserve him. David had a full awareness that he himself would not be king forever. And unknown to him, unknown to him, but revealed in types and shadows by the work of the Holy Spirit under inspiration. David was pointing to a greater forever king. He had no idea. David had no idea. Why would I suddenly shift and go third person to talk about the king? I am the king. Newsflash, David. 
you're only a representative of the one true king. The New Testament makes that really clear. Jesus was king before he was ever born incarnate in this world. And David's kingdom was a type and shadow of the greater kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. (coughs) And notice this language that's being used here. This language about the Lord Jesus Christ. It's remarkable, remarkable language that's going on here. I, I, I want you to see it. Here in verse six, and this is this is actually this is actually really cool. Here in verse six, I will prolong the king's life. The literal way to translate you will prolong the king's life. You will add days to the king's days. It's actually way cooler when you translate it like that. It's way better poetry than what they did with with it here. I want you to filter that through your brain just for a second. You will add days to the king's days. Now, if we're talking about mortality, what does the scripture say about a person's days? They're what? They're all numbered. Every day it's written down in God's book, it says. David would have been aware of this issue of mortality. He would have been aware of God's sovereignty over the length of a person's days. So, so what does it mean then from God's perspective to add days to someone's days? What it means, and David didn't have a full awareness of this, he does now. But what he, did, he didn't have a full awareness is God is capable of creating a circumstance where a human king has an unlimited number of days. Where a human king can have days upon days, days without end. And in this case, for this king, days without beginning. David's talking about a very different kind of king here. He's going third person because he's not talking about himself anymore. His years will be as many generations. Do you hear that language of eternality? Every year this king lives is like an entire generation of life that somebody else would live. What else does he say about this king? He will abide before God. That word abide, it loses so much. It means to sit enthroned. He will sit enthroned before God. So we've got this king who has days upon days and his years like a generation of lifetime who sits enthroned before God himself. And you appoint loving kindness and truth that they may preserve him. What is it that the Lord Jesus Christ came to demonstrate to this world in his incarnation? Loving kindness is the mercy-filled love of God wrapped up in the truth of who God is and what he expects from his creation. It says it in John chapter 1. It talks about it in the terms of grace and truth 
being embodied in the person of Jesus Christ. David, unknown to himself under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, begins speaking about the king in third person because he's not talking about himself as king. He's talking about the king, the king of kings, the Lord of lords, the only one who can raise you up from where you are to a rock that is higher than you because he himself is the rock. Jesus Christ, our comfort. For the faint of heart. And then I want you to notice the transformation that takes place for the one who is faint hearted. David is the recipient of this loving kindness and truth. Friends, there's no greater prescription for your mental, spiritual, emotional, or physical suffering than to embrace the reality that God is full of mercy and truth. Yes, there's a whole lot of other things you need when you're suffering. But friends, it's a ginormous first step to acknowledge the loving kindness and truth of God. Notice what else happens with the one who's faint of heart. Verse 8. So I will sing praise to your name forever. Now, I, I want to I pause because there's a lot of argument among theologians and Bible scholars about how and when and where people came to understand the notion of future resurrection and eternity and all of that kind of stuff. Can you, in your current physical form, do anything forever? No, thank you. The children got the answer right. Adults, please catch up. A plus for them. Everyone else, see me after for detention. You are not capable in your current physical form to do anything forever. That's not how it is right now. Something radical has to happen to you in order for you to do anything. Anything forever. If we're honest, and some of you who make resolutions, who made the resolution to maybe do a little extra exercise this year, you found out something radical might have to happen to you to do much for about 15 minutes. I've had conversations very close to my own heart here lately of going, wow, this used to be easier than what it is now. So what has to take place for this statement of David to be true? I will sing praise to your name forever. I will pay my vows day by day. Awful translation. I will fulfill my solemn promises day by day. Well, what's the day by day? What's the context of day by day here? It's under the context of forever. How can I sing praise to God and properly, appropriately, and completely without sin, fulfill all of my solemn promises to God to be the right image bearer of him forever without fail? How can that happen? can't happen in my current form 
It can't happen in my current way. There must be a transformation that takes place from the inside out that will have radical effects on the rest of my existence. And friends, that transformation is coming into life with the Lord Jesus Christ. It is meeting face to face and being transformed by and conformed to the image of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. It is Christ being our head, we being his body. Christ being the husband, we being the bride. It is Christ being the shepherd, we being the sheep. It is Christ in us and us in him. This is the transformation that must take place. And it happens in the gospel. And friends, not to make it trite, not to make it small, not to make it simple. But friends, we just need some simplicity in our lives from time to time. Do you want to know the greatest avenue of finding joy in the midst of the deepest and most profound sorrows that would make you cry out to God the way David cried out to God and end that crying out with singing praises, the thing that is the avenue to that transformation is the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what it is. And what is the gospel of Jesus Christ? It is the good news That Christ Jesus has come into the world to die for sinners. That's the gospel. I'm wretchedly lost and in darkness without Jesus. And Christ has come not only to give me life, but life abundant. To snatch me out of darkness... And propel me into the kingdom of his marvelous light. To take me from being an enemy of God. To being called God's friend. And not just God's friend. But God's own child. Invited to feast at his banquet table. To put on his robes of righteousness. And to be crowned with his very glory. And to be seated on the throne with his son Jesus. Because he loves Jesus and me. The same. That's the gospel. And friend, it doesn't matter what you're going through. The sorrow and the pain and the suffering and the cry of the heart that has driven you to that low place pales in comparison to the glory and the splendor and the majesty and the beauty of Jesus saving your soul. Jesus, the comfort for the faint of heart. Let's pray together. Father God, thank you. Thank you for this great work that the Lord Jesus Christ has done for us. Thank you that he is that true everlasting generational king. That he lifts us up to that rock. That he is our refuge. That he is our tower of strength. And that he can take us from a deep cry of the heart to singing praises forever. Father, I know in a room this size with this many people, there are so many that are struggling in so many profound ways. Father, be the God of comfort that you have promised to be 
through the gospel of your son, Jesus Christ, who brings us joy, who brings us peace, who shows us truth, who transforms us from the inside out, who causes the severity of our circumstances to pale in comparison to the splendor and beauty of his majestic face. And Father, we thank you in advance. We thank you in advance for the gift of joy that you supply all those who can rightly call you Father. In Jesus' name, amen. I invite you to stand as we sing a song of response together. Thank you.